why B2B teams suck at sales and how to fix it. Welcome back to a fresh episode of BreakingB2B.com. I'm your host, Sam Dunning. And if you want to check out our past episodes, try the weekday newsletter or apply to work with us. Head over to BreakingB2B.com. So join me today. I've got Richard Harris. Richard's the owner at the Harris Consulting Group and co-founder over at Surf and Sales. We're going to be diving into why so many B2B B2B teams suck when it comes to selling, if it's marketing's fault, some breakdowns on how you can fix it, top mistakes we see, and what you should be doing instead. We've got to give a huge shout out to Factors.ai. In B2B, there's a few harsh truths. At best, only 4% of your website visitors convert into sales calls, and less than 1% of the outbound account list ends up making a purchase. By the time people request a demo or call, they're already late in their stages of evaluation. Smart B2B companies don't wait for people to magically buy. Instead, they expand their sales pipeline by tapping into intent signals. Factors.ai identifies prospects showing buying intent on your website, LinkedIn, and G2. Prospect into high intent accounts at the moment they're buying. Make it easy for your team to generate revenue and get more from every dollar spent. The best part, you can attribute and track everything seamlessly through the factors.ai platform. Don't miss out, grab a free trial today and start maximizing your revenue over at factors.ai. A warm welcome to the show, Richard. Welcome back, it's been four years since you first came on. How are we doing, sir? I'm good, You you know, the important thing is we both went into our caves for COVID and we are now coming out of hibernation and it's good to see you. And we were chatting before we jumped on here that, you know, we need to do a better effort of staying in touch because I, I miss you, Sam. And I always love our conversations, whether it's in a session like this or just offline. So uh, glad to be back. Thank you. Yeah, likewise, man. Looking forward to diving in. We were saying it was it was when we did a UK versus US sales showdown. I think it was back in 2020. My show had a different name back then. We since rebranded and Yes, yeah, uh, way, way too long in the coming, but looking forward yeah. to the episode. We're going to be diving into something a bit unusual. Usually I bring on marketers, but I like to bring on sales leaders, sales experts every now and then, mainly to get a different spin on things. And also because these days, a lot of sales reps, especially BDRs, SDRs, are even having marketing leadership. So I think it's always interesting just to hear the other side of the story, let's say, hear the other side of the fence and understand what's going on with the trenches. So Let's dive straight into it, Richard. You've trained tons of tech sales teams, B2B teams, and more over the years. Yes. Why Why is it that so many B2B teams still suck when it comes to selling? Well, it has more to do, or has less to do with the actual frontline reps, whether it's BDR, SDR, XDR, whatever you call them, or the sales AEs, account managers, it has a lot more to do with leadership. Okay. Right. It has a lot more to do with um, leaders not knowing how to lead emotionally and from the front. It has a lot more to do with them 
not knowing the best ways to coach or wanting to coach. Uh, I think a lot of leaders, particularly in sales, still see management and leadership as babysitting. And in fairness, I was one of these managers. Like, I'm not sitting here saying, well, I've been perfect all my life. I wasn't. Like, and, and a big reason, now why do those leaders, I think, suck at it so much is that the leaders before us never did a good job, right? We were always sort of taught to, you know, roll up your sleeves and do the hard work and do the grit and do all those things, which is great. But rarely is a salesperson who typically gets promoted into leadership, rarely was there ever any training about soft skills, the emotional balance of your sales team, motivation, like motivation was, you know, carrot stick, here's a spiff, that's it. Unrealizing that, oh, sometimes the carrot becomes the stick if the goals are out of whack. And if the goals are out of whack because executive leadership has some pie in the sky dream. So a big piece of this is that. Now, on the front lines, there is a piece of effort and attitude. You have to put in the effort and have a good attitude about it. And I don't mean like cheery, cheery, you know, Willy Wonka, I just got a golden ticket attitude. I mean, you are going to have to learn and sometimes you're going to have to self-educate. And so for me, it, it has a lot to do with learning how to be more authentic. I'll shut up in a second and um, how to be accountable. And so there's this lack of accountability on the revenue side from the top down on what it takes to be a good leader, right? Nobody was ever taught you know, how to be a good leader. We were just promoted because we could hit the number. We helped out with the interviewing. Maybe we did a little onboarding. We raised our hand and said, I want to be a manager. So. You're on mute. You'd think after four years, I'd know how to unmute myself. Apparently not. I like it. I like how we've started. I get, so we, we've... I get, someone sent this to me because <laughs> Scott used to say all the time that, Richard, you're on mute. Richard, yeah, you think on. four years in, I'd learn how to, to use these right. tools, but apparently not. So I like that. You've taken a different spin to what I expected. So how much would you say is weighted on leadership's problem as opposed to actually the, the sales reps themselves taking accountability and doing some of those things you mentioned? At least 51% is on the leadership side. I would, I would guess it's... 75% on the leadership side. Um, it's by the way, it's getting better, right? Like it is getting better. I don't want to make it sound like it's, it's terrible. Um, it's getting better and it tends to get better as the economy gets better, right? Like as the economy gets better, we have more sales training and enablement and all those things and coaching. It gets worse when the economy sucks, you know, which is kind of interesting because I mean, Sam, in, in your experience and, and people you've talked to, how many leaders worked at a company where leadership coaching was made available? Directors of sales, VPs of sales, how to be a manager. Like you bring in some outside source. I was never at one. I, that's not true. One, my last real job, we kind of had someone come in. But did anybody ever teach, come in and teach you that? Or do you know people? Unless you were like at Oracle or Salesforce or, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, I've never been at large scale businesses, to be honest. Most of the time apart from when I was in retail and that's going back donkey's years, 12, 13 years ago, if not more, I've never been in large scale organizations. Where did you work front. in retail? That was, a, I don't know if you know, it's a shop called Jessup. So that was like a UK um, retail. They did cameras, video cameras, videography stuff. My, that my very first job in high school last century, I'm a little older than you, was at The Gap selling nice. clothes. 
So I, I have a retail affection with you. I have a con another connection, Sam. <laughs> so, yeah, we're talking about leadership. And yeah, like you say, you're exactly right. It's not often that I think unless you get into real large scale organizations that some of this training is readily well, available. Yeah. And, and the good news is, is that it's now readily available as the individual, right? As you're talking about this sort of breaking B2B, well, go break your own mold, right? Organizations now do have, you know, stipends or, you know, education funds of, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars and those kind of things. And if I were interviewing, I would ask, like, what do you have for me to help do my own self-education? Not just what are you going to teach me? Because I think those those opportunities now exist. They didn't exist for me. Right. That stuff wasn't online. Like You literally had to go to a, either a, a library or be a bookstore. And, you know, now you can actually find it in podcasts and you can find it in all these other places um, and courses and online and stuff. So the, it's a whole lot better than it used to be. And there's better opportunity than it used to be. Got it. So I think what would be quite fun is before I start taking a dig at marketing um, and I, I take all kinds of stances on this show. Sometimes I'll have a go at sales. Sometimes I'll have a go at marketing. We'll dive into whether it's marketing's fault for providing bad leads in a minute. But before we get to that, if you're up for it, Richard, I'd like to share perhaps the top three mistakes that you see from sales leadership and how we can resolve them. Yeah. And then the top three from sales reps themselves and yeah. how we can resolve those. So if we start with leadership, what are, would you say, go with number one first, what would you say is the juiciest, most painful so mistake? So at, I'll start at the highest level, right? At, at the Literally at the VC and founder level, you know, I work in a lot of SaaS and startups, so that's where my context is coming from. It's unrealistic goal setting, right? right. And so it, it's, and there's a balance between goal setting, making it a stretch, making it attainable, and greed, right? And and I don't mean greed in a bad way. Not that greed is good, like the movie. Um, more that everybody wants their money back and that's fair. And you're asking sales reps to, you know, uh, make you millionaires and billionaires, but then you're beating them up when it doesn't happen. Mm. Right. So that's the first mistake is there's this massive misalignment um, where I think we can get better. Um, I understand where it comes from in terms of, you know, if you've got a VC and you've got series A and your expectations and those kind of things. Uh, so that's the first thing. If I take it down one level from that, it's this belief system that only a couple of people should hit their goal. It's like only a couple of people should hit their goal. Everybody who doesn't will stay because they still want to hit their goal. It's like, no, I'd much rather have a team hit. I'd rather have 70 to 80% of my team hit their goal and have a way better attitude and energy and not have to worry so hard about recruiting than only have 20% hit the goal. and then I have to worry about retention and replacement. So those are, those are sort of at the executive level that I, that I think are, are big mistakes. And I think the third is, is an unwillingness to understand that training is a long tail solution and it's not one and done, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I'll, I'll promote myself for one second. Like, you know, in my training, it's not, I, I don't show up and throw up and train. I have, I have a four week, training and reinforcement there's there's reinforcement sessions and i think that that i'll blame a lot of the sales trainers on that they don't build their program that way which 
for me is good. So everybody who's a sales trainer, just skip that part. Um, so I feel like there's, there's that piece. And then the own, the, the leaders don't do enough coaching and then the reps, this is now here's an interesting thought and then I'll shut up again. Sales is supposed to be the biggest instigator of change with our customers. Yet salespeople, the front line and the managers and leaders are the hardest to make their own changes. I can come in and train and I always know there's, there's a couple of nuggets people walk away and I know they do. But if they aren't willing to stick with it, well, then where's the accountability there? So that, that's a big piece of it. We're, we are instigators of change, but we won't change ourselves even when we know we can be better. So true. So true. Let's dive into those three for leadership. So we've got unrealistic goal setting, believing that only a couple of our reps will actually hit or should actually hit those targets mm -hmm. we've set. And then unwillingness to realize that training itself is not a one and done, but a long-term yep. ongoing skill set thing you should be investing in. So let's go our unrealistic goal setting. What is your advice? So you're, you're exactly right. And I, I get it. Like, these big SaaS companies, these big tech companies that have got tons of funding, they're probably under a ton of pressure from VCs uh, to hit certain goals. So then they feel that they've got to go for those certain goals. And you said some mm -hmm. of it could be greed. Some of it just could be mad ambitiousness. And there's obviously nothing wrong with being ambitious. But in practical senses, how have you recommended teams to set goals? Like what is your advice when it comes to saying yeah. like, this, this year, to... this quarter, this is what we want to yeah. do? It's a great, it's a great question. So, you know, you have to ask, you know, the founders and the VPs, like, where's this number coming from and doing some research on a little bit about, well, what's the expectation? Where's that expectation? And why is that the expectation? Right. So that's the first thing. The other mm -hmm. thing is how do you set the revenue and the targets? I see it all the time is that everybody wants to ramp and onboard, and then they expect every rep to make 100% of the quota, like when you build out the quota plan. And that's not realistic. And then I will say, well, how many people actually do that? And if it's an early stage company, they don't even know, right? There's no track, there's no track record, there's no history to it. They're just guessing. I'm like, okay, well, you're gonna have a problem in a year and you're gonna have wasted all this time. So that's yeah. one, so, so again, finding that balance um, in, and, sort of, you kind of have to like whiteboard it a little bit. Well, okay, well, if this is the goal and you expect everybody to hit hundred percent, how realistic do you think it is? Right. And you have to have this epiphany moment. Now the founder or the VP or, you know, or the executives might say, well, I don't really have a choice. That's what was dictated. It's like, okay, well then let's put a plan together to show why that's unrealistic. Um, and put a plan together that says, well, if this is what you want me to do, here's how it's going to look. Here's what I think it should be. Thank you leaders. And we already know what's going to get chosen. I'm just trying to set that VP of sales up so that in 18 months when they have that, you know, stupid conversation, you know, that's the thing that it's like, well, I told you, like, why am I getting fired for being right? You know, because, you know, me, I'll, I'll, I'll hug them out the door. <laughs> so, um, so I think that's a piece of it. And I think that's by that last piece of, you do realize that the average tenure is this and the average tenure is because this is what happens every single time, right? There's, and what happens when you lose that VP of sales is the next one comes in and the founder finally realizes that they made the mistake on the first one. So the second one gets a better shot 
that doesn't work. And then it's the third one who finally figures it out. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. if they'd been listening all along, that's a piece of it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And have you ever worked with, so that that's kind of looking at it from a, I guess, either established, a mm -hmm. sizable organization or a company that's that's got some serious funding. Have you ever looked at it, perhaps even with your own business or working with smaller companies on how well, they should? The yeah, so it's the same thing. Like a big company, if they're asking me to come in, well, I'm like, well, what are the mistakes you've made? Like, why am I even here? What's happening? Mm. Oh, we didn't hit numbers. We didn't hit numbers. Okay, well, where did those come from? How did you get to that point? Because I'm going to give you some advice that you may or may not like. And if you're going to choose to ignore it, that's on you, right? That's, that's okay. So I do this at both big and small companies. Um, it's the exact same conversation. Contextually, it might change a little bit in the sense of like, okay, it's a small company. You're a first time founder. Here's what we need to express to the board. Here's um, what expectations should look like. Okay. You're afraid to go to the board. Fine. We'll build it out this way, but don't be surprised in a few months if this happens right? Whatever the if might be. So conversation's the same every place I go. Now at the bigger companies, they often have a historical track record, right? This, this is probably the best way to describe it, Sam. Forecasting will never, ever be accurate. Mm. Forecasting should always get better. That's the key piece, right? And if you think about you know, public companies, right? Like, so here in the States, it's earnings season. All the companies are announcing their earnings. You know, they've got macroeconomics and like really, really smart people who study this stuff and run, you know, all kinds of data analytics to determine this stuff. Well, you know, the rest of us are like licking our finger and, you know, which way is the wind blowing? Here's a dartboard. Like, I think we can do this, right? So, um, so, you know, your forecast needs to be looked at as a, as a measure, not an exact, right? Um, that's my opinion anyway, so. Okay, let's move on to point two, which is we've kind of touched on a bit with one, believing only a couple of our sales team should hit their yeah. goal. What do yeah. we mean by that? Is that just being wildly safe and conservative or is it something else? Uh, I think it's one of these copycat leagues. Well, that's the way it's always been done. Right. Right. You know, you, you know, why do you, you know, like you, you know, again, and I, I don't mean to pick on the VCs because let's face it without VCs, there would not be a lot of jobs that exist. So, so grateful for that is that they're driving things, I think at a certain numbers level. And there are some amazing VCs out there that I know, you know, um, uh, Landis is a really good one. I like at emergence and, um, Bessemer I like, and, and, uh, Michael over, um, uh, in, out of New York, there's another guy, but there, and there's tons of great VCs out there, um, who understand this balance and communication between the, what their VCs want and how to handle the, the startup. Um, I think it's a copycat league. It's the way it's always been done before. Um, and we're not looking at the evidence of gosh, the average sales leaders, there are only 16 to 18 months. Well, what should we be doing differently with that sales leader so that they stay 24? And not so much that the leader leaves, but that we're setting unrealistic expectations upon that leader, right? Like start to have this, you know, we're the biggest instigators of change, but we won't change ourselves. There's a book that I've, I've read um, 
Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene, who also did 48 Laws of Power, both great books. And he talks about humans being massively irrational and we mm -hmm. will take irrational thoughts and rationalize them, which I see a lot in this goal setting thing. Well, it's irrational to think that someone's going to last more than 16 months when we have evidence that it doesn't, but we rationalize that they will last longer. It's irrational to think the team should do it because the whole team should make more goal, you know, so, but they rationalize that they should do it this way. So that, that's where I think it's coming from in a lot of ways. But, um, and again, it's like, you're not thinking ahead in terms of like, okay, well, what's my cost of retention or replacement, right? What's the cost of having a, sh a sh can I, can I curse on here? Are we, sure. Are we, uh, we're on LinkedIn live. So uh, having a um, uh, unhappy culture, let's call it that, you know, like, you know, and they don't realize these things. They just see us as bots, right? That's why this is where I know we're not going to get into it, but that's why I'm so excited to see all these companies race to the bot of sales and see that that's not going to work either because mm -hmm. that will only work in a business B2C world like, like Amazon. And it's not going to change until the buyer changes their attitude. Right. And, you know, the, the quick version is, look, I'll go and spend three grand on a TV on Amazon easily. Right. I don't know how that translates over to, to the pound, but, you know, um, and I might even go spend 80 grand on a car, but I'm sure as heck not going to spend 80 grand on a software initiative where it's my solution only. And it's going to affect four other departments without talking to a human. Bots aren't going to solve that problem anytime soon. No, I think we're agreed there. I think we're agreed. Breaking B2B is sponsored by Revenue Hero. Did you ever fill in a website inquiry form only to wait hours or even days to hear back from a sales rep? Then comes the endless back and forth trying to schedule a time that works for everyone. It's painful, right? Leads slip through the cracks along with a ton of lost revenue. Revenue Hero fixes this painful process for B2B companies just like yours, allowing prospects to book a time on your sales team's calendar instantly from the website. Behind the scenes, marketing can even route qualified leads to the best sales rep for the job. Hundreds of businesses automate their requester demo or book a cool workflow with Revenue Hero, including app queues, inflection, ultimate AI, customer IO, and user evidence. B2B marketers can see increases in up to 80% of qualified meetings booked. See Revenue Hero in action for yourself today at revenuehero.io. That's revenuehero.io and grab a free demo. And then let's push to the last point before we move to before we shift to sales reps perspective on their biggest mistakes and what they need to fix. The last point, number three, you mentioned was unwillingness to realize that training your sales team is not a one and done, but an ongoing mm -hmm. effort. How do you shift that mindset? And like, what's what's the cure here? Well, I think so. That's part of what I do is that part of my reinforcement sessions are that um, I do some reinforcement with the managers and the team after training because I want the managers to know how to reinforce. Um, the cool thing is, I think from the bottom up, the reps are getting better at this. 
right? We've got the gongs of the world and the courses of the world and all those things. And I think reps are self-educating more than they ever did. I mentioned that earlier. Mm. So I think that's a tremendous, tremendously great thing about the role. We don't have to sit around and wait. And I also think that the one thing leaders are getting right and companies are getting right is like, let's give, you know, Sam a stipend of a thousand dollars or $1,500 a year. So if Sam wants to take a course, he can. Right. So I think that's a big piece of it. Um, so I, I, I don't know if I answered the question as, you know, uh, negatively as you wanted me to, but that's, you know, it's better than it used to be. Sounds like things are getting better. Um, are there any, is it one of those things where you believe that sales leaders have got to experience the pain in the sense that they've got to oh. maybe do a big payout, let's say for a sales kickoff. So they get one of the well-known sales trainers, whoever it is, they pay a boatload of cash and they think, excellent, this quarter we're going to hit our targets now because we've had this sales kickoff and we've had the best yeah. of the ton. And then they realize our sales team were buzzing for a few days and, and super hyped for a couple of days after, but we actually yeah. we need to constantly be be doing this training. We need to reinforce this is how you run discovery. This is how you run demos. This is follow up. This is customer success. Yeah. Whatever is involved, yeah. and then realizing that one and done's just aren't the cure to yeah. So this sales is a, results. So for me, I always say this: um, sales kickoffs are some of the worst times to ever do sales training, in the way that it's been traditionally done. You know, where you know someone like me comes in and does a, a training, you know, all day. Um, what and you nailed it it's like okay at this sales kickoff let's do a training for two hours just on better discovery like literally what are the questions we should be asking around need or economic impact or access to authority or timeline um or let's do a two-hour session on how to run a better demo like that's it like to try and do this whole thing i think is a massive waste of time and resource because it's just too much right at a traditional sales kickoff you know this isn't my line but i've repeated it is that you know the brain will only absorb as much as the butt will tolerate <laughs> right and if you're trying to like you know cram all this stuff in the head of these sales reps and expect them to memorize it all it's terrible what executives forget is that by the time the kickoff happens, they've seen the deck four or five times. They've read through it. They've done it. They've built it. They get it. It's in. It's been ingrained. They've studied it. The reps are seeing it the first time, right? So, you know, that's. So I'm not a fan of a massive training. I'm a fan of like finding a snippet, finding one thing that you want them to get better at, and do that, right? Like it's it's you know you know I, I, in in terms of you know. European football, right? Like the real football, you know, you practice the corner kick from the right side over and over and over again, not the left side, not the right side, you know, you know, now, you know, you don't try and do it all at once, right? You do one thing at a time. So everybody memorizes their position, their spot, where to move. And then you try to put the ball in play because, you know, it, it all lines up a certain way till the ball's kicked, right? Once the ball's kicked, everything changes. So true. And that this is spoken from a terrible footballer, even though I play about three days a week, I'm, I'm still god awful. But I think well, what you're trying you're, to you're a better footballer than I am a soccer player, so you know, there you go. <laughs> and I think uh, what you're trying to get at is it's is am I right in saying it's not broken down enough? So, yes, we're trying to cram too much into a single session rather than correct break whatever it's down, whether it's cold outreach, right. whether it's discovery, whether it's running damage, right. whatever. 
right. into small bite-sized pieces that are then ongoing throughout the year. Instead, yeah. we think, let's just ram all this at our reps in a few mm -hmm. hours and hope some of it sinks in and gets right. taken away. Right. Gotcha. Cool, man. All right, so that's the three leadership mistakes. Let's push on to, to sales reps themselves, be it A's, be it SDRs, wherever you want to take it, as practical as you wish. What are... What, what would you say if you had to condense it into three of the juiciest, most frustrating and easily fixable mistakes, what is it going to be on a sales rep's frontier? So I think, um, and I'll, I'll speak to the SDR, BDR world. Um, one of the biggest mistakes I think happens is that when an SDR, BDR, and I did this too, so I'm not above, you know, above everyone. If I sat in a meeting that day, I'd go take a break. I'd be like, ah. Oh, Take a break. You know, I, I call it Cadillacing around the bases, and in bases, I mean baseball, right? Uh, which you know, in, in your part of the world, might be called stickball. I don't know if you understand the game, but um, you know, they sort of saunter around like they just did everything, and it's kind of like you're losing so much momentum, right? Try not to do that, right? Stay on the phones, keep your sequence or cadence going, get back on email, and kind of like all right, who's next? Who's next? Who's next? And go for that second one, right? Particularly if it's early in the day. Like if you, you know, if you're one of those SDR BDRs and you set something up in the morning before lunch, it's like, I want to go for two today, mm. right? So that's the first mistake I think people make. Um, the second is they try to change things every time, right? Um, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where, actually, let me step back. It's, not realizing why they got in their slump is a mistake. I guarantee you, if, you know, I don't know what something happened. Why am I all of a sudden not setting any meetings like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was setting a meeting a week or two meetings a week. And if I sit down and talk to them, I'll be like, okay, what changed? Oh, nothing changed. I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's go listen to one of your calls now that we can listen and you hear it. Let's go listen to one of your better ones. And I'm like, oh, do you see how you cut this part out and this part out from the ones a couple of weeks ago? And and they'll go, oh, yeah. And I'll say, well, why did you do that? No, I was getting bored. I was tired of it. I'm like, dude, it's working. Why, why would you change something? So they change something. Or they'll say, oh, I was given this suggestion. So I changed something. Okay. And they forget that what was successful. So that's the first mistake. Um, the second mistake is they will change too often. So um, our friend Scott Lee's taught me this a long time ago, which was you don't ever make a change in the way you say something until you've accomplished, you've accomplished it once that day. So if I'm setting meetings and I want to try a new script, if I'm a BDR, okay. I'm not allowed to change my script until I set a meeting the first, that, that same day earlier. Because if I haven't set one, like, so again, I've got that momentum, I've got that energy, I'm, you know, there's a little less pressure so I can try something different. If I try something different and I haven't set one that day, all of a sudden by the end of the day, I'm stressing out. I'm freaking out because I haven't hit this number. So set yourself up for success before you just make a change for the sake of change. Got it. Okay. So let me just check. I've got those three right. And for audience. So is the first one not taking breaks after a win? So, Correct. for example, you set a meeting, I don't know, you, yeah. you set up a follow-up, whatever that is, right. and then not thinking, oh, great, I've, I've nailed this. I'm going to, I don't know, go out for a walk or 
grab a coffee, yeah. whatever it may be. When you're on a roll, you're on a roll. Right. Is that like a is that like a psychological thing behind that, or is that just something that you've seen from doing this so long? Or I think it's a little bit of everything, right? Like I think. I can't tell if it's egocentric because salespeople are like, yes, you know, and we, and I think sometimes we do need a break. I get it. I, I you know, if it's been a long week or maybe it's your first meeting that you've set, you know, um, or it's your first demo or, or finally someone said yes to the contract. So I want to make sure people know that I'm not talking about SDRs doing this. AEs do it. Everybody does it. You know, um, I think it's a relief. It's a way to sort of let some pressure off um, and, and that's healthy, good, mentally healthy. That's good. I think the challenge just is that you're just missing an opportunity, mm. right? Like, you know, I, I think, you know, again, you know, you know, when, when you score a goal in, in, you know, in football, you don't, your best player doesn't want to come off the court, off the pitch, just because they scored a goal. They want to go back out and do it again. Right. They, they've got all this energy right now. They take a breath and they calm and they settle and they ground themselves and then I think they go and do it again. And I think that's the difference. I don't know why though. I'm not a, not a psychologist as much as I might like to think I am. I think it makes sense. I think it's like, if you've got the momentum, it's almost like us as humans, we love to procrastinate. I certainly do. Yeah. So if I've got a bunch of tasks, I know I'm always good. Even if I know that, especially now, since I've, I've moved over and, renamed podcast, started my own agency, Breaking B2B. And I know that, that each day I'll make a list of the task and I'll always think I've got to prioritize the one that's going to drive revenue, whether that's, I don't know, doing my first, first off, doing a post about a tip around what we do, SEO websites, et cetera, on LinkedIn. Then I've got to do these follow-up calls with, I don't know, prospects that are in, uh, in sales conversations with. Then I've got to do another sales activity. But then I'll think in my head, yeah, I've got to do some of these tasks that are going to be a bit tricky and take some time. But I'd much rather mess around with a podcast or I'd much rather apply to be on someone right. else's marketing podcast. It's like right. your head starts playing tricks on you. Well, and it's, that, it's much the same with sales, right? You think, oh, I've got the win. I've got the meeting. I'm now going to procrastinate. I'll grab a coffee and I can do that tomorrow and I can push that yeah. back. And It's kind of the thing of like, I know better. I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm gonna. And it goes back to what I said earlier of like, we're irrational people, but we rationalize irrational thoughts. Right. Yeah. Like we rationalize, oh, I should go do this instead, you know, um, so, <laughs> and we avoid hard work. Oh, yeah. Like the plague. Like the mm -hmm. plague. Even even when I've got my to do list for the day, I'll still mess around and get to get yep. to nearly four or five o'clock and wonder where the hell the day went. So uh, working on that each day. Cool. That's point one. Point two was I think was not taking a step back and realizing what caused a slump. Yep. For anyone that's tuning in that's not familiar with a slump as well, walk us through, Richard, what that actually means and then how you can yeah. fix it. Yeah, so a slump is, you know, that moment when things aren't going well, right? Like you you were doing great, you were doing fine, and all of a sudden something's not working anymore, right? You're not setting as many demos or your deals aren't moving through the pipeline after your demos like they used to or your discovery calls aren't moving to demos, whatever it is, or, you know, you're not setting meetings. That's a slump. So we have to figure out how did I get into that slump? What did I change? Did I change anything? And so often, again, <clears throat> we don't want to believe we changed anything. Mm. Um, 
And in fact, we did. And when we go back and look for it and listen for it, we're like, oh, that's what I did. And so many times, I won't say all the time, it's I got bored, so I wanted to sound different. I thought this would sound better. And then you realize it didn't sound better, but you kept doing it anyway. So, um, you know, I, I did this once. I had this slump. This is when I first started. And I was doing my discovery. And, you know, people would ask me, well, you know, what do you do? And I would say, well, you know, I, I teach reps how to earn the right to ask questions, which questions to ask and when. And I thought that was a mouthful. So I tried to be funny and I changed it. And I said, you know, I, I try to teach reps how to stop saying stupid shit. You know, and that's funny in a bar. That's not appropriate in a business meeting. Right. And I went back and changed it. And all of a sudden I was out of my slope. Right. But I, it took me a while to realize, like, like, what is going on? Why is my business, you know, like, why am I not moving stuff forward? So it happens to everybody. Hmm. Do you think that like, often when I've often what I hear a lot is not just in sales, in marketing to business in general, that it's a common saying that a full pipeline cures, I think it's all ilks or ills. Right. So basically right. the saying is as long as you're constantly filling the pipeline. So if you're a sales rep, that might be cold calling. Mm -hmm. email warm referrals mm -hmm. whatever however you fill your funnel social selling whatever as a marketer that's going to be whatever your task whether that's running ads seo demand mm -hmm. gen trade shows whatever your department is is that right or is there a lot more to it like you said there, actually understanding what's causing issues and taking a step yeah, back and doing what changes it, um, it, it, it's not wrong right like a full pipeline does unless it's crappy pipeline Right. If it's crappy pipeline, that's not good. And so, again, I think we've we've created this belief that three X the pipeline is what we need. Like, really, do you think you close? You know, where did that come from? Well, that's what everybody says. Like, well, what if it was seven X? OK, what if it was two X, but it was way better? So this is what I tell everybody to do is, you know, if you've got any deal in your pipeline, that's two X the average sales cycle. Then you have to kill it. Because so many reps are leaving things in their pipeline as a reminder and a tickler. What it's really doing is reminding you of all the bad stuff. It's, it's creating a negative energy when you look at it. You're just like having a closet full of nothing to wear, right? You know, I got 25 deals in the pipeline. Only two are really any good. Well, why don't you kill the other ones? Oh, I don't want to do that. My pipeline will look empty. My executive team's going to look bad you know, at me. And I'm going to be like, yeah, but it's the truth. This goes back to that forecasting thing. This is why forecasting is so bad mm. is that we allow too much stuff in there that shouldn't be in the pipeline in the first place. So, you know, I, you know, the important piece to do, and I, and I say this, no matter what sales trainer you ever hire, you look at your pipeline and you take a snapshot of it the day before they show up and you start taking us, you start measuring and get that against what happens after that person shows up and the training's instigated. And you start looking at the new deals. Are the new deals better qualified? There might be fewer of them, but that's okay because they're more realistic. And that's what everybody wants in the first place. So there's a, there's a lot of gamesmanship around this whole pipeline creation and how much pipeline. So yes, it, it does. A full pipeline does not cure all wills, right? Or all ills. You know what does? Um, hitting revenue targets. Like, so it's not about, you know, yes, you need a pipeline, but you got to hit the numbers with good deals. 
I guess it's about it's a combination of things. As as always, there's never one clear answer, but I suppose it's no. it's being stricter with what you yeah. enter into right. the pipeline. And, yeah, and so sorry, go ahead. And what you qualify out. Yeah. So I call it like if you don't have strong exit criteria from one stage to the next, meaning these are the very specific activities that need to have occurred in order for us to move it from stage one to stage two or two to three or whatever, then that's where your pipeline fails. Right. That's mm. that's a place because you're not defining it well. And by the way, demo is not a pipeline stage. Demo is an activity within a particular pipeline stage. So the exit criteria are was the demo scheduled? Was the demo complete? Not demo stage, not proposal stage. Those are terrible stage names, but that's a whole other tangent. So, Do you have, this might be quite useful actually, especially for marketers tuning in that are working with their sales team and perhaps getting frustrated with sales reps when they look, when the marketers then go to look at the sales reps pipeline mm -hmm. and see certain things marked. I, like you said there, perhaps mm -hmm. discovery call ran or demo sat or, pushing to sign proposal or pushing to sign agreement. Is there like a, this is a generic question. I and I appreciate there's going to be a lot of nuance to it, but when it comes to actually setting realistic stages in mm -hmm. putting pipeline through, is there like a framework you should follow or are there any yeah. recommendations that you can give? Oh, absolutely. So starting at the highest level in marketing, you have a suspect, someone you think could be, the right person you would then have a prospect when you realize that they probably are you then move into qualifying stage then you move into discovery stage then you move into selection stage then you move into negotiation stage and then you move into closing and so within that there are certain things that must occur right so you know access to authority you know not necessarily stage one. Like you don't need to know who the who the decision maker is in your first meeting. That's the dumbest thing in the world to try and figure out. The most important thing is, do they have a pain and how painful is it for them? Do they have a headache or a migraine? So understanding that, you know, did the did you discuss the very specific pains and targets, and were you able to drive to some economic impact in qualification and discovery? That's more important than all the other stuff, right? It needs to be more customer centric for lack of a better phrase right there's no such thing this is the part marketing is going to hate so let's do that there's no such thing as a buyer's journey it does not exist there does not exist all that exists is a buyer's experience there's a seller's journey that's created by sales and marketing but there's not a buyer's journey why is there not a buyer's just journey? a seller because that buyer's journey means that they're on this path to go do something because they want to. No, they're looking for an experience. How many, how, Sam, how many apps do you have on your phone? hundred? Fifty odd. Yeah. Getting 50, towards okay. that, I expect. Yeah. How many are more on there, but you've had a, but you haven't deleted it, but it's because you have a bad experience. Uh, there's all sorts. There's yeah. plenty. Right. So, the only part of the journey might be, hmm, I'm curious. However, before, so I'm going to go look for an app. However, before you did that, you had an experience that says, I want to solve this problem. So there's a buyer's experience that you're going through. And that's the part that matters. There's a 
a seller's journey. That's the process. That's the stages. And I build it off of the experience I want them to have. Right? How many websites have you landed on and you're like, this is a shitty website. I'm out of here. Okay. Yeah, man. All the time. So that's what I mean. There's no buyer's journey. There's all, it's only instigated by an experience. I like your spin on that because I mean, it's, it's some, I suppose it's something that's talked about a fair bit when I look at kind of B2B marketers chatting various things on LinkedIn and where have mm-hmm. you. And you're right. I mean, I think as marketers, sometimes we're guilty of falling into traps and thinking that if we run certain campaigns, then our prospects going to follow it. Whether that is, I don't know, LinkedIn adds to a lead magnet to nurture yeah. campaign, whether that is via emails so, or via ads to then eventually requesting yeah, a demo to then going for a flow. And it, the truth is like B2B is so complex. And especially when you get into larger scale deals, people just don't do what you want them to do. And the way right. that people buy, especially in B2B and as the sale becomes more complex and software and service-based higher ticket deals, you can't, you can't control what your prospects are going to do, what your potential customers are going to do. Like you said, experience is a good way of putting it. Yeah. And so you, so if you take that approach, you can lead them. You cannot control them. You know, so here's, here's how I define the difference, right? Is that don't talk about what you do. Talk about the pain you solve. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you, and this is the challenge I see between sales and marketing right? Sales needs to talk about the pains. Marketing locks to talk about what you do. So my example is I used to say, and, and, you know, oh, I'm a sales trainer and I've trained companies like Zoom and Salesforce and whatever. It's like, blah, who cares? Right? So does everybody else. But if I say I teach reps how to earn the right to ask questions, which questions to ask and when there's not a sales leader or marketing leader who doesn't understand exactly what that is. And in most cases they can go, yeah, I know three people on our team who could get better at that. So talk about the pain you solve in the context of your customer, right? In a way that paints a picture of pain that tells a story, not what you do. Right. Um, it's very specific as well, isn't it? It's very yeah. relatable. What you've, yeah. what you've defined there, although it's only a sentence, it's very mm-hmm. crisp. It's to the point. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you can always, like you say, imagine it in your head. Yep. That's, and not- that's a big piece of the, you know, a good sales trainer will teach your team how to do that. I think a lot of people in general could learn, learn, some, learn something from that for the way that they describe their business or their tagline. Yeah. Or like you mentioned, the problem they fix, being able to, being able to clearly and succinctly say what you do but in a sentence that shares the problem that you fix at the same time is it sounds easy, but it's very, very difficult. Yeah. 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 That's the goal. And it's, it's kind of like saying everybody's talking to you because they got a headache. It's our job as salespeople to make them realize they actually have a migraine. Mm. Mm. Cool, man. I think we, we did. I think we did two of the, two of the issues with sales. I think yeah. we touched on the third one, which I believe was changing too often with processes. Was that right? Or Yeah. Yeah, it was the process. And then it was like, how do I articulate it? Might be the third one. How do I articulate right. what my, what we're doing? Gotcha. Being able to, and have we covered that already in terms of kind of clearly defining kind of the offer or the problem you fix? Or yeah. is there more to yeah. more to go into there? Yeah. Yeah. Don't ask me if we did two or three. I'm, I'm, a, I'm in sales. <laughs> I, have a, I have the memory of a goldfish. So, oh, yeah. dude. Same here. 
same here. Um, yeah, I like the way this conversation's gone. We've we've covered some some useful angles, and I believe it's going to be useful for for marketing teams, especially ones that are probably working closely with sales and probably looking at a pipeline and probably wondering kind of why aren't these deals progressing as yeah. fast as they should be? Like, is it sales fault? And hopefully that gives a, another side of the coin, which I like to do on this show quite a lot. Um, but just to just to take one dig at marketing, I'm a marketer myself, so I can get away with it. How often of the time is it marketing's fault for sending quote unquote bad leads to sales? Well, I mean, if they're truly bad leads, then that's marketing's fault. I think the 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 real question is like, what's the relationship like between sales and marketing to figure this out? Right. Mm. And and you know, sales, if your head of sales sits around and blames marketing but doesn't sit down to talk to marketing, then that's not marketing's fault. If your head of sales wants to sit down with marketing, but marketing wants to discount or disbelieve what the salesperson's saying, then that's marketing's fault. So I think there's a, a communication gap that happens there, um, which is also one of the reasons I think the CRO, the chief revenue officer has evolved in the last three or four years, right? That, you know, when you and I started that, that didn't really even exist. We we're like, what's that? And so now there's someone who can be the judge of sales and marketing and find the right answer. So um, that's the good news. Um, if marketing is truly sending bad leads, yes. What's interesting is if you look at the average tenure of a marketer versus the average tenure of a sales leader, uh, it's ridiculously low. I want to say the last time I looked, the average tenure of a marketer was like two and a half years. Meanwhile, a, a sales leader was 16 or 18 months. So that doesn't mean the marketer's getting it right because the sales leader was getting fired for not hitting the goal. So that's part of it. The other piece I will say is, uh, and you tell me if this is happening, marketing actually needs to own the number. They actually have to generate a revenue target and that scares the heck out of marketers. Well, I can't control that. And it's like, well, then the salespeople can't control the quality of the lead. Like, no, marketing, you have to own a piece of the number. A percentage of revenue has to come from you. Now, where that falls apart is that everybody wants single attribution to the deal. And that's not appropriate. Mm. That, and that's an executive stupid decision. Oh, only marketing or only sales can get paid because, God forbid, we maybe overcompensate a smidge, right? It's like, really? Like, if if... If there are a percentage of deals that get double dinged for compensation and you're going to go out of business because of that, then you got a way bigger problem than sales and marketing. So this sole attribution of either sales or either marketing is just stupid. Now, there could be a rule of, look, if marketing hasn't touched them in you know 18 months, okay, then it can't be. But even then, if the salesperson's using content and collateral for marketing, well, then why doesn't marketing get credit for that? Like that's so stupid to me. So mm. I, I think it has a it, it's a built-in problem as much as it is someone's fault, so to speak, at, at the marketing side. So I'm I'm being pretty nice to marketing, I think, Sam. I think so. I think I'm I'm harsh on marketers all the time. And I I, I do B2B marketing, right? Like right. I often think that I do agree. I think B2B marketers should be held accountable to revenue numbers. And I think that a lot of marketers, in my opinion, have it too easy. And I believe that they should get out there on the front lines because yep. having sold and having marketed, selling is way bloody tougher, in my honest opinion, because a lot of mar the a lot of the time marketers can hide behind certain things and blame sales. 
And once you get in the cold front line of doing things like cold calling, dealing with objections face on, you'll realize that your life as a marketer is so much easier. And but, if you go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, if, if marketers just took one day out to kind of realize that some of the shit that salespeople deal with, then they'd, they'd have a lot more sympathy and they'd yeah. realize, well, how can we can support these folks? Like, like you say, I mean, we, we talk about this stuff on the, on the show all the, all the time, like working with your sales team to understand like the top five objections, top three to five juicy breathing, bleeding neck problems you fix, how you can leverage your, that in the media, the content, the ads you put out. So you can work together, but you can both be held accountable especially when it comes to larger deal cycles, because yeah. it's not just sales that are accountable. Marketing is going to yeah. be influencing this pipeline as it goes. So without taking too much of a tangent, I definitely agree with that point wholeheartedly as regular listeners of the show will know. So there's, so this is a suggestion too. Um, and I love that you said, you know, marketers should get on the front line and make some cold calls and stuff like that. Um, and if there's any marketers who want to know, well, I don't know how to do it. I'll send you a script. It's pretty simple. Someone picks up the phone. You just say, oh, wow, someone picked up the phone. <laughs> oh, my God, Sam, someone picked up the phone. You just made my day. Look, if you don't like what I have to say, you can just hang up on me. Is that OK? There you go. That's your script marketing. Now, what I will say, by the way, this goes back to to all the way back to the leadership stuff is the best advice I give all sales leaders. And it falls with this marketing leaders is have a sales leader run a discovery call, record it and send it to the team and tell the team to break it down. Tell me what I missed. My VP mm. of sales did that and was that vulnerable. Wow. What would that do to my culture? Right. Mm. So I think that's a huge, huge thing um, that people should pay attention to in, in terms of like, how do I motivate without having to you know, use a carrot or stick? Put your, you're right. Put yourself in there. Put yourself in there. Have a CEO do the same thing. Right. So that, that's how I encourage people to, to look at this. I like it. And I'm sure a lot of marketers are going to have opinions on this. So I look forward to seeing those, whether that is in the comments or feel free to email me, sam at samdunning.org or yes. drop either myself or Richard a message on LinkedIn. We we open, yeah. openly accept the feedback. So with that, Richard, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining me. We'll have to do it more frequently than four years next time. Yes. Please do tell us more about how everyone tuning in can learn from you. Please tell us more about the new book. Yeah. And anything you want to share? Yeah. So um, my book is coming out. Uh, it's called The Seller's Journey. In case you, you know, for those who are watching, you didn't see it in the background with my lovely display. Um, and it is a practical and tactical approach to selling. It has a ton of sales uh, tips, like how to negotiate with, um, with procurement and how to stop giving discounts and how to use and versus but. So there's a ton of tactics in there as well as some mindset stuff. So I appreciate it. You can find it at the sellersjourney.co, sellersjourney.co. And I'm crazy, Sam, plus one, 415-596-9149, 415-596-9149. Yeah, that's my real cell phone number. It's the one that Sam and I can text on. Yes, I'm on WhatsApp. So I'm always here to answer a question, support people, do what I can. You might want to text me first. Just say, hey, I heard you on Sam's podcast. Um, uh, can I chat with you? So I will gladly take uh, phone calls. And of course, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Richard Harris. And I'm the one with a little trademark symbol by my name to be goofy. I think you're the first person to share their cell phone number on the show. So I'm the only person who ever does it. I'm the only person. And rarely do people ever call me. It's like we're in sales and people don't call me and I give out my phone number. My phone number's in my LinkedIn profile. You know what I get? A lot of terrible in, you know, in-mails. Oh, like, don't we all? 
So, you know, it's not from a lack of effort for me to make it easy. So, <laughs> Good man, good man. And we're going to put the links to your book and all those resources below in the show notes. Thank you once again, Richard. Really enjoyed the chat. And yeah, thanks. Thanks to you. Thanks to everyone for, for watching. Tune in today. We've got to give a quick shout out to the show sponsors, Revenue Hero and Factors AI. And if you want to check out past episodes, check out the daily newsletter or apply to work with us on your B2B marketing. Head over to breakingb2b.com and we'll catch you soon.